righty, all righty, Screen Heat Miami. All are- right, all right, all right. Hitting it hard today, my friend. Yes, yes, yes. As we always do, we yeah. never come soft. Mm-mm-mm. So, yeah, this one, um, and this is a friend of mine and a fellow producer and writer. Uh, right. Full disclosure, and we have a project together that we'll talk a little bit about in this interview with Vincent Vargas, our guest for this episode. Yes, love the name. Very similar to a, and this is a, a tease for later, Vincent Vega, the famous Tarantino character. <laughs> yeah, every time, every time I hear from Vince, I hear his name, I think of Vincent Vega. Ugh, and, I've, and I've mistakenly called him that a couple of times, so... <laughs> Yeah. And speaking of calls, we should say who we are. This is Screen Heat Miami. <laughs> I'm Kevin Sharpley. JL Martinez, and we are brought to you by Cinevision, Kamakuru, the Miami Media and Film Market, and Kijik Multimedia. Uh, shout out, and we should hopefully get this out in time. We have an MMFM webinar coming up next week, our first live webinar since our MMFM 12 conference, and we'll be introducing a a new Miami organization called Miami Film Lab, which I'm very excited to talk to Jen Castellanos about her work over at the lab. Yes, I knew Jennifer when she was Jennifer Orta. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, to see her and her partner, Sylvia, go into this venture just makes me smile. It makes me happy on the inside, on the outside. It makes the sunshine. Two uh, more deserving people could not be pushing a venture such as this. So this is this is really uh, big. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And yeah, she's doing some great work over there. So we'll be we'll be chatting it up on a on a live MMFM webinar very soon. So check it out. We're on Eventbrite, so you can sign up. It's free, but you have to pre-register. Can you go to MiamiMediaFilmMarket.org? Yes, yes, there is a pop-up on our homepage, so that will link you to the webinar as well. Absolutely. Great, great, great. Yep. So I, I did want to, I, you know, I didn't give uh, Vince a big, big proper introduction because mm-hmm. we're going to go into his episode, but I have to say that uh, his drive and his push towards um, Outreach and mental health is unparalleled. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would say that he is um, he is on the forefront of that. And, but it's only paralleled by his successful career, being on one of FX's biggest shows, Mayans MC, five seasons already of that show. And, uh, you know, his character has survived. It's a spinoff from Sons of Anarchy. And not many people make it through these kinds of shows. Yeah. So um, that's that's a big, big up for Mr. Vargas. Oh, yeah. So um, we do have to go to the ups and downs, as we always do in our Screen Heat Miami podcast. And something that's been really up and down has been movie theaters. That has been hotly debated, hotly contested, and especially with uh, the shutdown 
because of the pandemic. And no one really knew what was going to happen. All the streamers uh, started to really cut their teeth around that time, maybe a little bit before, um, some during, uh, as they released one by one. That's not Netflix, of course, being the biggest one that really changed the game. And, you know, that's many years ago. But, you know, everybody is putting their their hat in the ring towards streaming. And especially during the shutdown, the debate was, is the theatrical release dead? Mm. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, but it's alas! It's not. Yeah. It's uh, been a roller coaster. Uh, to quote Tarantino, not, no, I'm sorry. That's his colleague, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, who said that <laughs> yeah. Marvel movies are theme parks. So if that's the case, then movie theaters themselves are the roller coasters in that venture. So it's been up and down. But yes, as you mentioned, uh, you shared a great article uh, from Yahoo, from the CEO of IMAX, who had something to say about it. The debate is over. You need that theatrical window. And I agree. I agree. I mean, there's nothing like being in that movie theater, feeling the energy of all the people in the theater reacting to what they're seeing on the screen. Mm. And, you know, the numbers are there. I mean, there have been such big hits. And in the article, it speaks about a movie that's taken 20 plus years to have a sequel, which is Tom Cruise, his biggest, biggest release ever. Yeah. In no, history, I, and actually, yeah, yeah, one of the biggest releases of of uh, of this year, or the yeah. biggest release of this. Year. It's it's huge, yeah. yeah. His his biggest movie, the biggest movie in total box office so far this year, and just yeah, one of those thrill rides that needs to be experienced. And that's the first time I felt since the oncoming of the pandemic, sitting and watching that movie on a big screen and just being blown away by that thrill ride of a movie which was just spectacular on all accounts so you know kudos to paramount for sticking to their guns pardon the pun and and holding the fort there until the right time to release the movie to get the most bang for their buck and they totally did uh which really helped elevate the theatrical experience in general this year yeah i mean top gun maverick uh, Mm -hmm. begged to be seen in the theaters and so I, I hope, you know, if you are a fan and even if you're not a fan that you did get a chance to see that movie in the theaters, uh, but uh, over a billion dollars in box office, just imagine if they would have just uh, put that movie on stream, mm. then yeah, you know, they would have missed a, a great revenue, a great revenue source. And then there's a lot of movies this year. We'll talk about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, yeah. After Speaking of big, big B.O., I mean, Black Panther, just wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I have to say that I saw Black Panther over the weekend, Wakanda Forever. And yeah. man, this one rivals the first one. And look, the proof is in the pudding. If the movie is good, people are going to come out to see it. Mm. Uh, Wakanda Forever, biggest November opener ever 181 million dollar wow. u.s opening 331.3 million dollars globally mm. i mean you know this one it'll hit a billion plus mm-hmm. but just imagine a movie like that not getting a theatrical release 
And yeah, you I, have I to see that spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's another one. That yeah. Yeah. That's another one. Like, like the Tom Cruise movie, like, like Top Gun Maverick, that is definitely begs to be seen on a large format and a large screen. Not only, you know, obviously a highly anticipated sequel in general, but then unfortunately with, with the passing of, you know, their, their leader and their actor, you know, uh, Bozeman the, back in 2020 at the height of the pandemic, right? Everyone was just wondering what was going to happen with that franchise. Cause everybody knew even at the time there was going to be a sequel. Uh, and it was just not a matter of, of if, but when, and that pivot that everyone had to do, unfortunately. And I think there was just that anticipation to see how that franchise was going to move on without their star. Yeah. And to be in the theater and kind of feel everyone's reaction and to look around in certain moments, you know, there mm. were tears and all throughout, you know, it kind of ebbed and flowed. So, you know, right. to actually feel all of that, man. And that movie was such a thrill ride. I mean, to see Namor, someone, you know, this character that you'd see in the comics and, mm. you know, everybody was, you know, kind of wondering how it was really going to fit into you. You saw it in the teasers, the winged ankles, you know, so was that really going to play out well in the big screen? And it really did. Um, oh, yeah. I have to give it up. I have to give it up. Uh, the actor that played uh, Namor, and I don't have his name right now. We'll get it after the jump. But I mean, what a breakthrough performance. Mm. And these are the kind of things that for me, and it seems for everyone else, uh, being able to connect with others uh, on these kinds of experiences and the tributes, uh, it makes you really, really understand why these theatrical releases are important. But to hear that from the IMAX CEO, of course, you know, he is uh, pushing his product. So mm -hmm. there's a lot to be said about that, but the proof is right. in the numbers. So it's oh, really yeah. great. To, you know, then they, they, pro they probably never hit the numbers at the height right. uh, ever again. But to yeah. know that theaters are still going to be here is really, you know, it's a good thing. Especially after the summer, you know, they had a nice little bump over the summer. Then there was a lull, which usually happens heading into the fall season. So they needed a monster film like Black Panther Wakanda Forever to really come in and put the wind back into theatrical sales, so to speak. And it totally did that. Yep. And then uh, and to just, you know, hopefully they want to keep the party going, you know, smaller fare. That's kind of testing the waters out there. Steven Spielberg's Fablemans, which did well in a couple theaters in New York and L.A. That's going to be a step release. For them so we'll see how it does as that uh grows into more screens you know uh leading into the i'm, I'm sure what's going to be a, a pretty big oscar push for those guys yeah our very own renee rodriguez who was he is our film critic du jour even if he works doesn't work for the miami herald mm. anymore as a, as a critic yeah but uh he gave it four stars Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's now running his own cinema paradiso over in the Gables. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> yep. At our at our alma mater. That's at right. the U, baby. So yeah, yep, yeah that's for theater. That's a great theater. So many memories that we have, obviously, both as students as as professionals, going back there and watching movies at the Cosford. You know, uh, obviously, the name, a legendary critic unto himself, Bill Cosford, yep. right? And now yep. to see, you know, our sort of current uh, critic uh going there and taking over the reins and running that theater and having so many amazing events and screenings and q and a's uh it's just it's great to see what he's doing over there with that with that particular venue 
Shout out Renee. Vince Vargas. Here we go. Yeah, so here we are. Another incredible Screen Heat Miami interview about to take place. Mm. We have Vince Rocco Vargas <laughs> in the house. <laughs> got, waiting for this one. Got all your names in just in case. You got to uh, get them in there. Absolutely. Well, Vince, thank you so much for joining us on Screen Heat today. Uh, pleasure to, to connect with you. Heard a lot of great things from Kevin, but I'm glad we're, we're finally able to chat. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So the journey of the artist, let's take it back. I, I see from your bio, you're originally from Southern California. Yep. Yep. From uh, the San Fernando Valley, the 818. Love it. The Valley. 818. Yes. 818. Yes. <laughs> I was uh, I was in L.A. for about four years. I was in a I was a 310, even though I was living in mid Wilshire, kind of like between, I guess, Beverly Hills and I guess what you would consider either mid Wilshire, Koreatown, somewhere in that. Yep. <laughs> in that neck of the woods but the valley had its own vibe which i always loved and appreciated as well yeah and i worked everywhere so i know all the areas mm, okay I used to be yeah. a store manager i used to be a store manager at champ sports in beverly center oh so okay I, yeah. yeah that was a favorite hangout of mine back yeah. in the day the good old <laughs> beverly center go to see movies there sometimes on the weekends hang out do some shopping yeah, we probably seen each other. We probably ran into each other. At some we point. probably did. I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe you sold me some shoes. I, uh, I sold a lot of people's shoes. <laughs> kicks. We're not going to get into the easy controversy today, but yes, always into some kicks. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it was a great neighborhood. And uh, yeah, I was over by, uh, if you remember the, uh, the LACMA museum and the mm -hmm. SAG building and all that fun stuff, the, uh, the La Brea tar pits. Yes. Those famous tar pits. I told LA. my wife about that. She she didn't even know. She was like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. They have the red tar pits in LA. Can you imagine actual tar that was preserving dinosaur bones. Like you can't, yeah. it doesn't even. <laughs> it's it's something that a lot of us did for um, like kids would go on, uh, you know, those little trips with their school to the red tar pits. This is like, everyone did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's like a fascinating thing to see that still bubbling up and the smell of it when you get close to it. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's pretty dope. Yeah, no, yeah I guess we don't have to we don't have to say the time period that you were there, uh, JL. You said yeah. um, you said kicks. Like, <laughs> well, no. whenever Entourage was popular, that's when I was there. Oh, you remember the movie uh, Encino Man? I do. Yeah. That's the one yeah. for me. It was like when I was young, I was like, that's the jam right there. But I always thought about the La Brea Tar Pits and all that stuff mm -hmm. in the you know, same era. Yeah. And all those crazy disaster movies where, you know, the big LA earthquake comes up through the tar pits and then the rest of the world gets devoured. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. But, uh, well, but tell us a little bit about more you, you and, and your upbringing in the Valley and sort of was that when you kind of got that first spark that maybe an entertainment career was in your future or were you just yeah. growing up? Or like when did other? you get that spark or let's take it even further back. We're going to take it all the way back okay. to the tar pit time. <laughs> Growing uh, up, what was it like growing up in yeah, the valley? You, you know, my um, my father was a former gang member. Mm -hmm. My mother was someone who was raised in poverty. She's a first generation, you know, American. So they both come from you know different backgrounds. My father was a street kid because he didn't want to go home to an abusive father. Obviously, then that usually turns into finding a family in the streets, and he became a gang member. Uh, he eventually got in trouble and decided that it was either jail or the military, and he joined the military. He met my mom while she was 
18 years old, she moved from a, from a very poor city that she grew up in, in, in El Paso, Texas, a small town called Ganotillo. And uh, she wanted to, just the dream of doing something bigger with herself. She didn't want to be like everyone else who stayed in the same system and the same cannery, marrying the same person. And, you know, that cycle that she just didn't want for herself. And so she moved to LA. And so, you know, that's kind of the root of, of who I am is, you know, my father turned his life around to, to, to be a good man for the family. Um, and my mother was just a hard worker. And so, you know, we grew up, uh, you know, at first we were in the Arlita area and then, and then we moved down to the, at, at the time we were there was Sepulveda eventually went through several name changes, went to North Hills and now it's considered Northridge. Um, and I grew up there almost in the same house that I still go stay at when I, when I go to LA to work on film. Um, but I've always been a creative. I've always been a drawer, something to do with art and painting. Um, and I've always been a fan of television and movies, you know, like one of the first movies I can tell you that just strikes me was, was like a fun kid movie was uh, Mighty Ducks. You know, Mighty Ducks was like, man, look at these kids. They're my age. You know what I mean? They're acting like, why can't I do that? Right. But you grow up in LA and you, you have these kids that are in the world, right? Their, their fathers are editors or, or sound engineers or, or even producers. And so it wasn't far-fetched for me to try and figure that out, you know? And so in, in junior high was probably the first time I thought like, man, I would love to try and figure out how to do that. But it wasn't a reality in my family. It wasn't something that you, you can, you know, my, both my parents were working hard just to, you know, you know, keep the lights on. And so when I was in school, I was part of stage crew, which I used to set up the lights and the, and the audio for, for the kids in theater, right? And theater, again, wasn't for a guy like me. It wasn't, it wasn't common for, you know, most of the kids that were in like the, the magnet classes or the kids that were in the, you know, the, the advanced classes tend to do the theater stuff or, you know, and I, I had no, no clue about that. It was a whole different world, but I was part of the trouble kids who set up the audio, you know what I mean? And, and did the lighting. And I remember watching, doing the lighting and finding my cues during one of the, the plays we were doing. And I was like in awe that they had the guts to stand up there and do that. I, I was like, man, I wish I could do that. Like, I, th I thought it was awesome, but I didn't believe it was for me. And that continued all the way through high school, watching the theater. I go to these plays because I was interested in it. I didn't have the guts to do it. And also they started, they had a reputation that they weren't the cool kids. And I was like, well, man, you don't want to kind of, you kind of didn't want to do that, right? You didn't want to alienate yourself, right? Because like, it's like this, this fight to be the cool kid or, or at least to be in a cool crowd, you know? And so I was the athlete who played basketball, football, baseball, right? And, you know, and I was fully inundated in sports and baseball and, and, and I did do art, I did paint and draw, um, but I, I wanted to do theater. You know, I saw this girl in high school and she was able to make me emotional during a high school play. And that's not common for a Hispanic dude. You know what I mean? In LA from a tough dad, like dudes don't cry. You know what I mean? And that was probably the first time I was like, dang, this is, this, this girl's a whole different level. And, um, you know, and that kind of continued by the time I got to college, that's where I was failing my, my classes trying to become academic and eligible for baseball. I, I wanted to be academically eligible for baseball. And my coach was like, hey, you should do theater classes. Those are easy, right? That's an easy A. And I was like, screw it. You know, now you have the excuse to show up, right? Let me get an easy A. I showed up to my first class and it was an improv class. And uh, the first day he asked one of us to get up and show us uh, an, an, an improv of coming home drunk and trying to sneak in. And I was doing this every night already. So I was like, this is, I got this, you know what I mean? And that was like, 
the classroom laughed and they, they cheered after and he commented and I was like, yo, this is something that I would love to try and continue to do. And, you know, I did it for two years in, in school, did improv for almost a year and did a couple of theater stuff and, and, and some and understanding the stage work and everything. And then uh, I ended up baseball kind of took, took control of my life. I did go to one audition. I did one. It was like a Toyota audition. I, I decided I, it was like an open call. You know, I was like, it's time, man. I'm going to do this. And and I have, I have a reading disorder. Right. So I severely struggled with reading and they hand me the script. And I was nervous, one, that, that I was going to mess with the script. And two, I was, I was stumbling on the words and that I just ended up getting so nervous. I started sweating and I just walked out the room. And I never went back to acting ever again. I did the whole military thing. And then I ended up going, I started doing YouTube and my career kind of took off from there. Oh, wow. So, yeah, this, this, is, this is incredible. You know, <laughs> someone stepped away, totally away. And you had the interest. I mean, that's. Oh, also I, I, incredible. Yeah. You I had the interest and you stepped away. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, the reading, the insecurities about reading, I thought was always going to be an issue for me. And so that day was like kind of the heartbreaker of like, all right, let's throw that dream out the window and never worry about that again. Focus on baseball. Baseball didn't work out. I ended up doing the military and kind of a crazy story how I jumped into YouTube, but I can. Yeah. Add, well, I don't, I, I don't want to gloss over before we get to the YouTube. I don't want to gloss okay. over your uh, illustrious military career. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'd like to, you know, talk about that because you're also doing a lot of outreach uh, in yeah. that vein. And so, but I want to talk about the career first and then yeah. we'll also talk about a lot of the outreach that you're doing. Um, so you go into the military. Was yeah. it what you expected when you first went in? Uh, you know, it was a tool for me. I knew it was to get me to the next phase of my life. Um, baseball was all I really loved. And I really believed I could go pro, uh, but my maturity wasn't matching my skill sets in baseball. <laughs> and so, oh, wow. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the professional um, acumen, your yeah. ability to play wasn't in the way. No, it was the fact that I couldn't, I couldn't focus on getting my education done because I was too busy drinking and partying. Right. Got it. Like what came yeah. along with being a good ball player was the attention of that and, and not being able to manage right. that and saying, you know, everyone's expectations are like, Hey, he's a party animal. Let's go party. You know, Hey, let's go to a new party. And you're like, okay, go. And so I was keeping up this persona of this like popular baseball stud, but I wasn't doing the things I needed to Right? the coaches to say, take care of the night before I wasn't taking care of the night before I wasn't taking care of anything. You know what I mean? And then eventually I lost a full ride scholarship to baseball, a full ride lost it. Wow. And I even tried to do some other independent pros. I got, I, I, I tried out for these, these teams and kept getting cut because, you know, the reputation besieged you. Like they just knew I wasn't, yeah. I was, I was a drinker. I was a fighter and I was a party animal, you know, as much as I had a left arm, I could throw heat and I could hit home runs. I was, and I had a big body. I was a good body frame. So there was a lot about me physically and aesthetically was right. But mentally I was just, I was a maniac. I was too much of a risk, you know? And so, um, you know, I became academically ineligible and then I couldn't find a place to play after that. So at the time I had a daughter who was just born, I'm talking like weeks and it was like, well, now what? And that was where I was watching the war on TV. And I knew like, okay, um, let's go do that. Let's figure ourselves out. Let's get, we need some maturity in us and we need some, uh, an ability to be able to pay for, um, you know, formula, baby formula was so expensive. Her mom was texting me like how much I, I was like, 
I said, I had to call my mom. Mom, can you send her some money? Because I don't have any money. I'm a college kid, right? I'm working at Texas Roadhouse and I can't even cover formula because I'm trying to cover my rent, you know, and, and that was none of that was making sense. And so I joined the military and decided I wanted to do special operations. You know, I knew I was physically fit. I knew I was, you know, I knew I wasn't sure how much I could challenge myself, but I wanted I wanted the challenge of that to see how far I can go. And so I went Army Ranger Special Operations. And so and that meant the contract meant I had the opportunity to try out. Uh, it was up to me if I was going to quit or not. And uh, luckily, you know, through getting through it and, and, and it's kind of like a trial by, you know, drinking from a fire hydrant, I, I've got through, <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, within 30 days, I find myself in Afghanistan. And it was just prior to that, you know, the Pat Tillman incident happened. So I was in second Ranger battalion in the same battalion where Pat Tillman was killed. Right. And, and everyone who knows the story, Pat Tillman turned down a $40 million contract. I believe it was with the, with the Arizona Cardinals for football, just to go serve his country. And later on, he was killed by friendly fire in a, in a, in a terrible incident that happened in Afghanistan. So I got there as that happened and I watched it all go down. I watched as in, in at the unit, as they're overseas, I'm at the unit and watching all the chaos ensue in the back, right? Where the battalion, where people that were home were like guarding the gates from reporters. And we were getting phone calls from reporters looking for interviews. And as, as people came, came back that were injured on that mission, you start to see them. And it was just like, oh, this is wild, man. Like, this is a whole different world for me. Within 30 days after that, I'm in Afghanistan now. And I'm like, man, this is what a crazy, I remember my first time in Afghanistan on a hill waiting for a mission and we're sitting there doing it like a, a kind of like a patrol base kind of, kind of concept. And I'm already thinking like, yo, I'm getting out. Yeah. In four years, I'm getting out. Like, I can't wait. I don't know what I'm going to do, but whatever it is, I'm going to apply myself. Like I knew I should have it, it, it and, and I, I can be successful. Right. I knew right away within days, I knew, damn it. If I applied myself in the real world, like I have to do now, I'd be successful, but it's too late. I signed a four-year contract. Now I'm in, a, in the side of Afghanistan. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I got four years left of this. Like, this is crazy. And that I knew like I could apply myself so much more outside. And I just didn't because I was too immature. And so I loved what the military gave me. It, it taught me how to be a man of, 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 of morals and values. It taught me how to be a man of, of accomplishing things. It, it taught me so much about myself and maturity that I, I'm forever going to be indebted to. And I believe I use a lot of that in current, my current career field. You know, I show up on time. I'm always dressed right. I, I'm prepared for my job. I'm always trained. All those same aspects of being in the military have helped me so much as an actor or a creator because it's given me the same tools that I need to be, be professional, you know, to be all these different things. And so the military gave me that. It also left me with, with an understanding of the world around me and the empathy that I believe helps me with my art, helps me with creativeness, right? Like I believe, you know, just as much as I'm going in trying to get a bad guy or terrorist on the other side of it, the wife and the kids who are watching me do that, they're seeing me going in, taking, taking their data of their home and they don't understand the circumstance. And we potentially just created another enemy. Right. And I understand that now. And the depth of that is like, man, what a, what a crazy world we live in. And so I try to bring a lot of that empathy and understanding of the, the human, the human experience to everything I do. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And I know that you're a writer as well. We have a project together. And so we'll talk about that uh, moving forward. I just want to talk about one other aspect. 
because I know that the Rangers, you know, that's the elite unit of the army. Yes. And so, um, and you know, they have other elite units and other branches of the military. It's the equivalent. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the difficulties of getting into an elite unit like the Rangers? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, you know, people want to know because, and, and then, you know, you talked about how you carried a lot of these uh, lessons moving forward. So, yeah. you know, what does that entail? You know, uh, to get into Ranger Battalion, you have to pass a, a thing called RASP, which is Ranger Assessment Selection Program. And during my time, it was named RIP, uh, Ranger Indoctrinal Program. And in that time, it's about three weeks of completely crush your soul, uh, mental tough skills. I mean, from heavy, heavy physical training, uh, running five miles in under, uh, I think it's just under 40 minutes, uh, wearing a rock and full gear and running, uh, I believe it's a three miles plus a full PT test of dragging a 180 pound body and climbing oh, oh, crazy, right? These are just little things, uh, a regular PT test, uh, smoke sessions, which is just like, um, corrective training, push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks, everything you can think of, like at any time, any moment, one person messes up, it's on. There's a thing called coal range, which is like seven days of hell. They put you out there and they crush you until people quit. They'll even put like a hot fire with sodas and, and, and hot dogs and say, hey, if you guys quit, you can get that right now. Like, go ahead and quit. It's fine. You know, and, and, and we're running. We're, we're doing. All the, I mean, we were. It's just insane. Like the they put you through as much hell as possible. And the concept behind that is let me push them to their limit and see if they quit. See if they because combat will put you there. Combat will push you to the limits. And we need to know that you're not going to quit when it's hard. And they push you to the point of heat exhaustion, of, of dehydration, of like, I mean, people broken hips and feet from, from how hard we're carrying heavy weight and walking a long distance at a very fast pace, right? They put you through mental skills when you haven't slept. You've probably slept 20 minutes and the next day you have to do, you know, a seven point um, land navigation uh, you know, evaluation, you got to find locations in the middle of the, like, it's crazy. They do all these things. And these are all intricate skill sets to make sure that in the moment of stress and combat, you will be a problem solver and you won't quit on your brothers to the left and right of you. And, and if that doesn't teach you that you, so you can endure so much, so much more than you ever imagined, right? The brain is the thing that you have to fight through, right? And once you do that, like there's, there's no holds bar, right? There's, there's nothing that can stop me because the only thing that has stopped me is my own self doubt. Well, when you, and, and for me, it was like, well, let's see how hard they could push me. Let's see if I do quit. Right. And as they push me harder, I look back and left and right and see someone that's doing a little bit worse than me. And I'm like, okay, I'm not that bad. So we're doing all right. You know what I mean? And I kept doing that. And I was worried about the one day I'm looking around and I'm the worst guy, right? I'm like, please don't be the worst. Oh no, he's worse. Okay. We're good. <laughs> right. And, and I'd play these games with myself. Like I didn't want to, you know, there's something that I've done my whole life that, that you know, comes to me right now is that I, I don't want to call that phone call to my dad and say I couldn't do it. I felt like I didn't, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to embarrass my dad. I want to make him proud. And if I quit, I felt like I don't know if he would have respected me as much as a man because I've always chased his, his, his uh, you know, his affirmation. I always chased my dad saying, man, you, you're, you're a good man. You know what I mean? It's just as a young man wanting to match up to my father who I looked up to so much. And then the other thing is I had a daughter and I kept thinking like, this is for her. This is for her. I'm going to walk across the stage and I'm going to receive my graduation certificate. And she's going to be clapping and cheering me on and proud of me. 
And that hasn't changed. And I now have eight kids and I still envision them seeing me go across the stage and winning something and being proud of me. And that's evolved from each kid to each kid in each field of my life, wherever I've been. You know, it used to be the military stage. Then it was the law enforcement stage. Now I'm in the acting stages and film creative stages. And, you know, there's going to be a, a, there's going to be a podium I walk across and my kids will be in the stands cheering me on. And that vision is what drives me to try and to not quit, right. To push through. Um, and so that's what the military gave me. That's what selection's about. And, and you're not even done when you get that done with that, you get the Ranger battalion. Then you have to, you can't promote unless you go to Ranger school. Ranger school is considered one of the hardest schools in the military. It is a, a leadership school by trade. I lost 36 pounds in 63 days, you know, and you don't sleep, you barely eat and you have to create, be, be successful at making these missions. Right. And, and you have to learn how to motivate everyone in your platoon on their worst day with no sleep, no food and get them to do the right job. Like that's leadership. Like that's so much value, but imagine a director on set and it's a late night, 14 hours. And you're like, Hey guys, we need to complete the mission. I need you, you, you to get the job done, get your dialogue camera. To, you know what I mean? Like you, it's the same aspect. And that's why I say it's just, it's brought so much to my life now that I've learned how to lead people in the hardest conditions. And I'm excited to use that in Hollywood as well. Yeah, that's incredible. And certainly we'll talk a little bit more about the mental health aspects mm -hmm. because that's, that's a big part of what you do uh, yeah, to yeah. this day. Absolutely. But the mental health aspects of not only, <clears throat> not only uh, your service in the military, but what you continue to do overall. Yes, so we'll, uh, we'll definitely come back to that. But um, you progress out of your military career. Um, you move into law enforcement. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you're in law enforcement for how long? And then, you know, yeah. how does that evolve into your first love, your first love, which was acting? Yeah, it's crazy. So initially the first job I can find out of the military, there was a, there was a sales job I did for about a month, but the first like job that paid well was uh, corrections. And I did that for two years. It was like $22 an hour is the best I can find. Uh, it was kind of the stepping stone for law enforcement. So I thought it'd be a really good, good, uh, you know, I guess to kind of get my feet wet in civilian culture and, uh, again and understand it. I did that for two years. I was a special operations there as well for this called the sort team, a special operations response team for like prison riots and everything. I did that for uh, two years. And at the same time, while I was doing that, I was already applying for the border patrol. Um, and two years later, man, I got hired on the border patrol in 2009, went to the border patrol Academy and finished that and, and was shipped off to, to the border of Texas, Del Rio sector currently right now is the busiest sector in the, the hot spot. Yep. It's the hot spot. It's the busiest sector in department of Homeland security. Um, and so I was there for two years before I laterally transferred to SOG, which is special operations group. I became special operations, the board patrol as well, but special operations group, uh, is the highest echelon of special operations for the border patrol. I became a medic for the tactical team. I also helped uh, reshape the selection program for medics. Uh, I became, it's called Borstar, Border Patrol um, Search Trauma and Rescue. So I became a medic and a search trauma medic for the border, which means uh, I don't care if it's an illegal immigrant or, or a border patrol agent, uh, I'm going to provide medical value and assistance to, to any circumstance that I find within the border, as well as anyone that called 911 that was missing most of the time in, in, in illegal who comes across and gets scattered. Um, 
they, they, at one point, if they call 911, will we triangulate their position and we go search them out? Because uh, if you don't, potentially the next day is 120 heat and they can de die of dehydration. So my job is essentially finding people when they call for help. And it was stressful. It was, the, the, uh, it was satisfying and it was fulfilling to be able to rescue people when they were, when they were lost and they were struggling. Uh, it was, and, and then there's also with that is you don't save everyone. And that's the sad part about that job. You know, eventually I transitioned out of that into the tactical space where I became the tactical medic for a tactical team. Um, and I did that to about 2015. And before I walked away in 2013, a friend of mine calls me and goes, Hey man, I got this YouTube series. It's doing really well. I'd love to get you on. I was like, uh, yeah, uh, okay. I'm, I'm down to, to do some YouTube, whatever. Right. And the first video we did, it's, it's essentially was a military humor show. And we made fun of ourselves. We were special operations military dudes. And we'd make fun of post-traumatic stress. We'd find the humor behind it, right? And we, we'd make fun of the veteran culture, like having a new soldier, you know, get married to a stripper. It happens all the time, right? She said she loved me, right? And so we'd make fun of that, right? Or they go out and they buy this car they can't even afford with their little paychecks, right? These little nuances that veterans understood and laughed about, right? And so we made these videos and they went viral. And, and I remember like filming the first one, I'm like, oh, this is dope, man. This is like, this is kind of like stepping into the world I've wanted for so long and I wasn't sure how to get back into it, you know? And I did that for two years until me and my friends decided we wanted to produce a movie. And we crowdfunded a movie. It was the fourth highest crowdfund of Indiegogo history at the time. Yeah, it was crazy. We raised 1.5 million for this movie. I don't know if I'll ever raise that kind of money ever again, right? Uh, we made a military humor um, movie with that same budget. We filmed the documentary of us doing this. And the first day on set, I knew I, I looked back at my buddy. I said, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. He's like, I believe you, buddy. Right. Whatever. Right. I know joke. <laughs> the film came out. It was absolutely terrible. Like first time filmmakers, right. You're just embarrassed about it, but it did well. Right. It was, a, it was like I said, nuanced yeah. humor for the community. It was a, it was a cult classic for our community. Um, it was three weeks at number one in, in Amazon. First time an independent film did that. Like we did all, we broke all kinds of boundaries they decided they wanted to continue moving forward and just the comfortable route of doing the YouTube and business. I was like, I'm done with that. Like my mind is so wrapped on what's more, what's next and how I can get more that I jumped into the mainstream Hollywood. Like, how do I do it? And from there, I produced a short film about, about veteran um, post-traumatic stress and success. Right. And then I did this improv comedy with another veteran that, that, that blew up. And then I got my audition for Mayans and that took off. And so from there, it's just one thing after the other, it keeps happening. And I just graduated from a screenwriting course from the, from the writer's guild. And, and I'm now currently um, going to be a writer this season on Mayans as well. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's incredible. That's, is that a, is that a screen heat exclusive? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's exclusive. No one knows that. I haven't, that's amazing. And it also sounds like almost like you're like the plot line of Barry. <laughs> Dude, I watched Barry and I was like, this is so dope. Man. And, I, and I called, so one of the actors on Barry is um, Michael Irby. Michael Irby plays, um, what's his name? Uh, he's talking like this. Eh? <laughs> What's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a great series. <laughs> oh, dude, Crystal Ball. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Yeah. So he plays Crystal Ball, and I said, "Bro, that 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 
yeah, that damn show is so close to my world. I think it's awesome. It's exactly, I love Barry and I love the, the, the whole veteran uh, post-traumatic stress kind of, kind of feel to it. It's so cool. The way they, that's an incredible show. Yeah. M Michael Irby, right. Is the actor. Michael Irby. Yeah. yeah. He plays yeah. Bishop on Mayans. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic actor. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> one of the best. Yeah. But it's just funny. Cause it's like, you know, art imitating life, imitating art. And then you're kind of like the real thing, right. You know, yeah. obviously minus the hitman stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. Assuming. Besides the hitman stuff. <laughs> and, and you know, what's cool is that Mayans knew my background. And so in season four, we kind of came together and I told them some of my own traumas that I struggled with in life and, and the veteran experience of like coming back and, and we actually did that. So if you watch season four and if you haven't watched it, watch season four and it shows the arc, the story arc of Gilly, my character, um, he reunites with his veteran brothers and that kind of brews some old emotions back. And, and it's really gorgeous the way we told that story. And I'm excited to see where that goes season five. Wow, yeah, this congrats. is, yeah, I mean, you know, you know about someone, but you don't know about <laughs> someone. So this, <laughs> this is, this is really incredible to also hear that uh, with Mayans, you know, you're going to jump into the writing. Oftentimes, you know, people want to jump straight into the directing. And so, you know, for me, yeah. writing is where everything springs from. Without yeah. that kernel. Oh, I you agree. Doing? You know, for me, you know, there's a lot of people trying to be an actor. A lot of people want their career to blow up, but they don't know how. Like, I, I don't, you can do it a million times. It's different for everyone. Everyone's story is different how it works. And for me, I think the best opportunity of making your successful career is by kind of navigating your own career, telling your story, right? What's genuine to you. And so I, I decided to get into writing more. I've been writing for a long time, but focusing on the screenwriting side of things like, well, let me write my truths, right? Who, who can tell you about the border patrol, but me, right? Who can tell you about being a special operations army ranger mode of combat? Me, right? You can find someone else who doesn't want to, who will tell their version of it, but I'll tell you the most honest representation of that because I lived it. And so yeah. I am coming from a perspective of my own personal experience and trying to put that on paper next. Yeah. So, uh, uh, JL, did you have something? No, no, no. I was just agreeing. I think that's great. And it's something that, you know, bringing in these sort of new and fresh perspectives is something that I think the industry desperately needs, right? Because, yeah. you know, I think we've had a couple generations now of these kind of film brats that all they know is film and filmmaking and film school. And they don't bring that sort of like hard real life experience that it seems like you bring to the table and colors all of your work and makes it yeah. authentic. No, exactly. And think about this, Jose, you know, this, like, like what's recently a lot of the Hispanics are talking about, you know, a lot of Latinos in film are talking about like the underrepresentation of Latinos. Like, yeah, but yeah, I don't like to complain as much. I like to find an answer. Right. And then the military you say, if you bring up an issue, you better come with a solution. And my solution for that right. is then, well then start writing start telling our story. It's up to us. Like, like no one else is going to give us that opportunity besides ourselves. And so I believe us veterans who say the same thing, every veteran is represented in Hollywood as a suicidal post-traumatic stress, uh, drunken veteran, right? Like, okay, but why? Well, because we haven't taken it upon ourselves to tell our story. We haven't grown up on the echelons of Hollywood to say, Hey, here's the truth. Here's my truth. And that's my goal is as a Latino to tell that story, uh, of my story and my truth, and as well as a veteran to tell my truth. And, and I, I can't sit here and say, no one's giving me opportunity. I was like, well, well, no, I'm going to make opportunity. I'm going to make opportunity. And that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah. 
No, that's very well said. Yeah, just so oftentimes we get stuck in sort of victimization of our culture and our different communities. And it's more about finding the solutions, protagonizing it. You know, if you don't get in one way, get another. And like you said, have your story to tell and find a way to tell it. Absolutely. Uh, so I think that's definitely the right advice for, for all the sort of minority groups that are looking for more representation, whether it's in Hollywood or elsewhere. Right. Um, is to just kind of use that that positive momentum and just keep building on it as opposed to just, you know, complaining on Twitter or whatever, throwing another hashtag up. It right, just... Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think <laughs> Why did you have to bring up Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> it's a hot topic. It's a hot topic. Sorry, uh, I, uh, Vince, I know you were about to jump No, on no, that, you're good. So. I'm saying that's exactly it. I believe we have to take destiny in our own hands. You know what I mean? And, you know, if it doesn't work at that point, well, I've done everything I could possibly do and that's okay. I can, I can live with that one, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I'd be bereft to not jump into Mayans, one of FX's most popular shows in history. So we yeah. have to talk a, at least a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, and th yeah. So you get the audition. Did you audition for the character that you are playing on Mayans? No. no do you remember? I, yeah, yeah, I do remember. I auditioned for uh, in the so I did two auditions. I did the first audition, then I got a call back. So the first audition was a serious dude. And, and it, I believe it was a, a, some kind of version of my character, right? Um, then the second audition, I had a comedy part, like someone with humor, and then a serious guy. So I did two parts. Um, I remember the humor is the one that hit it off. The humor is the one that landed. They laughed. I laughed. I kind of blacked out. It was kind of like, you know, like, oh, I blacked out. What happened? Everyone's laughing in the room. And I was like, okay, that worked, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so we did, we did the first pilot. The first pilot, my character was named was Pez. It was Lopez. They called him Pez. And I was a prospect. Um, and mm. so I eventually found out the character Pez was based on a, a real person that Elgin James uh, grew up with. And which later was rebirthed as um, Steve in season three, I believe it is. And so um, so after the first pilot, they threw that whole pilot out and they repurposed a few characters. Uh, they, they sent a few characters off and, and they redid it. So we reshot the first to now the second pilot. And now my character is Gilly and I'm a fully patched member. And so that's, that's who I play currently. Um, it's been an interesting evolution of how that worked. And my first character had no lines and I knew I was getting killed off right away. Right. I knew, I knew I got, I was, I wasn't going to make it, but Hey, for me, I was like, this is my big break. I got a chance. I finally, you know, I'm on a show. Like it was the right step in trying to grow a career. So I didn't care if I got, I could have got killed within the first minute. I made it mom. You know what I'm saying? But now, you know, we're going into season five and my character Gilly and, you know, he's stirring up his own problems on, on, on the, on the MC and, you know, who knows what's going to happen next, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and this, this, for me, this is also a treat. I have a project that has Tommy Flanagan, um, who, you know, some Sons of Anarchy played Chips and Sons of Anarchy. And I remember when he agreed to do the voiceover, he's one of my favorite actors um, okay. next to you, <laughs> yeah, next you. to you. And now Colin O'Donoghue is the host of one of our shows. Oh, great. But um, yeah, so um, I had not watched any Sons of Anarchy when I first met him. And you know, he talked, that's when it was, you know, at the top and he yeah. just kept talking about it and talking about it. I binged it in three weeks, seven seasons in three weeks. It's crazy. It's so good. And, they, and then when they, and then when they, yeah, but mine's is the same. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, equal. And I guess it kind of had to be that way. Right. Because, you know, you yeah. already come from, you know, yeah, that you, you already come from, uh, from the world 
you know, of sons. And yeah. so I think we, we had a huge tidal wave of fans that followed on. And then we have a new, yeah. new wave of, you know, the Latino fans who jumped on board. As yeah. Well. And myself included, I'm, I'm also a Mayans fan, but uh, before I even met you, so, <laughs> you know, I, I had to kind of follow through, but um, so I want to talk about, you know, this kind of growth that you all have had at you know, on the show, it's five seasons. I think I remember, I could be wrong, uh, the announcement of season six. Um, but um, this kind of growth uh, that you had uh, in Mayans and the growth of the show as a whole yeah. and your your growth as an actor. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I, I guess I knew landing this job, it could be life-changing. And I didn't know to what aspect of it. Uh, it's considered one of the biggest shows in the world, right? Like it's like a the lottery ticket you never knew you got right it's a lottery ticket and every one of our careers after this whether it goes six seven five whatever seasons it goes will blow up like we'll have opportunity you know and so i knew that this was a, a, a starting point and, and a stepping off point as well so um the show had its fans and it has even a new set of fans on top of that now not everyone came aboard, right? Not everyone's a Mayans fan, right? Because some people are so diehard sons, they don't even want to touch us. And that's cool. I respect that completely. But television and entertainment, you know, we're doing our part to, to, to be a voice for, you know, some of the communities that don't get opportunities, right? This is the biggest Latino show on cable television. Everyone on this show is Hispanic or Latino, <laughs> Mexican, Peruvian, something. And that in itself says a lot, right? For, for, for people to say we're, we're the under, you know, you know, underrepresented, like uh, just look at the show, everyone on there from, from head to toe, besides maybe two actors have, a, you know, some, some kind of Latin descent. And that's beautiful to say. And it's also considered FX is one of the, their, their top three shows, I believe it is. And yeah. the numbers are astronomical. They've grown from season one to like season two to season three, now to season four. I mean, the numbers are ridiculous because you also can't, you know, you count your live viewers, you count your plus threes, your plus sevens, streaming numbers, all this. I mean, the show is absolutely killing it. It's a phenomenon. I got people messaging me from Brazil, from, from everywhere, everywhere you can think of, you know what I mean? And as that's grown, my character has grown. It's just, I, I don't, I mean, I can't even say it enough. Like I couldn't have asked for a better, you know, opportunity to walk into the world of Mayans and try and do the most with it. I feel like I'm doing the most I possibly could with it. And as long as it goes, I hope to be on board, but I also know it's one of those jobs where you, you can't expect too much. You kind of like every script I get, I'm like, Oh, thank God I didn't die yet. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, one of those shows where you know yeah, it is. part yeah. of the show is people die, you know, and so yeah. I'm gonna I have nothing but gratitude and appreciation for the opportunity I've been given, and I'm gonna give it 110% until the day I can't. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and so I said that I wanted to revisit this whole kind of, and I think that this is a, a big part of your life, the mental health outreach. Yeah. Um, I know that you have a, a nonprofit. And I know that this outreach in general is a big part of um, what you do. If you look at your socials, if you look at your platforms and also, you know, a lot of the events and things that you've done, this type of outreach yes. uh, has been a part of your life. And so yeah. that's incredible. Can you talk a little bit about that outreach both yeah. on the military level and on other levels? Yeah. You know, um, 
you know, the military struggled for a long time with, with veterans struggling with transition, right? That's the term we use is struggling with transition, getting out of the military, losing kind of your personality. The military tells you what to wear, what to dress and, and where to go for so many years that we kind of lose who we are, right? At the root of it, like, what are we, what do we stand for? Who, what's my purpose, you know? And so I, I kind of took a position about seven years ago, I started speaking publicly about transition and, and I started using my own story about my struggles with transition. And as that's evolved, I've watched the community go so many different ways, some bad, some good, you know, and as I evolved as a human, as a person, as a father, as a husband, as a man, I've gone deep down the wellness lane and finding all the answers for myself because I've been through divorce. I've, I haven't been the best of fathers. You know what I mean? I've gone through alcoholism. I've gone through all these hardships and all I can do now is say, look, I have a platform where people like to see what I have to say. I could use this for good or evil. You know, I have, I, I believe in God, right? And I believe in like leaving this place a better place than you found it. And so I do everything I can to give my personal experiences to the world. And if that can help them, so be it. And that's turned into me speaking public, doing public speaking across the nation. I do about 10 speaking engagements a year. Um, I do a lot of these little videos that are very, very intrusive into my world of my issues that I can give to you and say, here's how I found relief from that trauma, from that stress. And I've continued to do this day in and day out. I, my organization is called Veteran, right? I'm trying to push veterans to be better, right? And that to me means like wellness, right? My nonprofit, we're, we're still growing this thing. It's called Tomorrow Battalion because I believe in like we can we can help veterans today to have a better tomorrow, right? And in Almost everything I create from the film that the animated film that we worked on, it's it, 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 I try and strip away the veteran aspect of it and really talk about the human experience of trauma. We all have trauma, right? We're all going through something. And once I was able to acknowledge that to people, people like, oh, man, well, then now I don't feel alone. Right. I don't feel alone in this. That means other people are struggling with this. So how did they fix it? And, and that's kind of I use myself as that that kind of that the, the lighthouse for that. Like, here's my trauma and here's my answers. Try it maybe it works. And if it doesn't, there's many other modalities of healing out there. And so that's what I do daily. My, I did a morning talk this morning. That's why I have this studio. I do like these 30 minute live sessions in the morning sometimes, and it's just a perspective. And I talked about this perspective was about how I used to raise kids when I was 20 years old. And now that I'm 40, it's a different perspective. You know what I mean? And I've grown as a person. I've matured just like I did as a baseball player to a soldier. Now, as a man, I mature daily. I read, I, I, I study, I, I, I learn. And all I can do is try and give that back to others who aren't as fortunate as I am, who don't have the, the resources at, at, you know, at their forefront. If I can bring them knowledge and, and, and heal some of that trauma, so be it. And so it's my life mission. Any film that I make, I want it to have a purpose. Anything I write, it has to have value. Um, and that's kind of why acting to me is so valuable. The biggest influences of our time are social media, mainstream media, all right? T film and television, those influence more people than you'll ever understand. And if the messaging is that veterans are broken, well, then veterans will start to believe that themselves. And I refuse to allow that to continue to happen. Right. So like, how do I change that? Well, I got to change the messaging. Well, I got to get my foot in the door. Right. Latinos as well. Same. It's the same argument. Right. We're underrepresented. Well, then how do I fix that? I got to do it myself. I got to do my best to tell the story of every different culture that's out there. I'm half Mexican, half Puerto Rican. People don't understand like the nuances of that. 
right? I've had both arguments that flan is Puerto Rican, flan is Mexican. Now, we both have our versions, right? But it's beautiful, right? Like, you know, Mexicans make tamales and Puerto Ricans make pasteles. The same damn thing, different ingredients, but it's just as gorgeous in both cultures, right? And so my goal is to tell these stories to, to enlighten others, to, for people not to feel so alone, and also to help with their, to identify, like, we all have traumas. Like, if we heal those, we don't project those, right? Hurt people hurt people, right? If we heal our trauma, we, we can be, we're able to go and help others with theirs. And so that just, just kind of what's, what's driven in my heart to do. Wow. This right. is incredible. Oh, that's you, it's very good. I'm going to interrupt you, JL, because I want to, I want to turn, I want to turn the tables on the host, on the co-host, because um, you're half Cuban and half Puerto Rican, correct? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you can understand this perspective. So, you know, I kind of want to turn it on its head um, and, you know, perhaps have a little bit of a discussion. And I have two biracial uh, daughters, uh, one that's Nicaraguan and black and one that's Indian and black. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't have the same perspective, but, you know, I can see the things that they go through. My daughter is at Vanderbilt right now um, in the program, a psych psychology program. She's getting her master's in uh, mental counseling. And a big part of it is, you know, dealing with biracial issues. But okay. I don't want to just talk about biracial issues, um, this uh, Latino representation. You know, yeah. I want to kind of talk about this Latino rep representation, because as you said, uh, Vince, you know, you're half Puerto Rican, you're half Mexican. Oftentimes when you think about the industry, you know, there's this homogenized, um, this is what Mayans does very well. They don't treat it as a homogenized, um, you know, una Latin character. Yeah. And oftentimes it's this homogenized, um, you know, one note Latin character. Mm -hmm. So can you guys talk about, um, you know, what can help? Does that make a difference? And what could help in make, if it does, what could help in making this distinction in terms of the outreach to the greater uh, Hispanic community or Latino or Latinx or Latinx? Or you know, <laughs> whatever you wanna, yeah, call it, right? call it. <laughs> whatever's politically yeah. correct at the time. It's so hard to yeah. sometimes. I don't want to offend no one, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, this is oh, to yeah, both of saying, you please. guys. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm look, obviously uh, it's it's a very interesting subject. Like you said, I'm I'm half Cuban, half Puerto Rican, like we guys like to say las dos alas del mismo pájaro, essentially, is what we say about the Cuban and Puerto Rican culture. And like you said, there's different uh, you, you have to translate that for yeah. us. Oh. The, American uh, compadres. I mean, I, I understand it, but we say the, that the Cubans the and Puerto Ricans are the, the two wings of the same bird, yes. essentially. Uh, and I think that can go for a lot of Latino cultures. We have so many similarities in terms of obviously food and a language, but then there's different dialects. There's different interpretations for what certain things mean. Uh, there's different things we celebrate. And obviously, you know, there, there's all of those colors, right? Uh, that makes this sort of diaspora and this sort of uh, fabric quilt, uh, especially in the U.S. Hispanic community, right? Because yes. when you start to transition from the immigrant culture to the first, second, third generation, and we become more American as well, mm -hmm. then you have to take that community into uh, account as well. Folks that grew up 
you know, where now English is our primary language because that's what we learn in school, but we speak Spanish to our grandparents at home. Uh, you know, the content we watch is everything from, you know, the latest Marvel movie to, you know, when Abuela's watching Sábado Gigante or whatever, you know, and all of <laughs> I that. I like Sábado Gigante, yeah. so. <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, we talked to the filmmaker of the Walter Mercado documentary on Netflix, which was oh, great because it was able to sort of cover these two generations and how you connected over this strange guy that gave you these crazy horoscopes in Spanish and that broke out into the mainstream. So it's always about telling those unique stories. I think irrespective of what your culture or your community is, you know, if you feel underrepresented, I think everyone has a unique voice. Uh, and it doesn't ha mean that every story has to be Mexican or Puerto Rican or Cuban or what have you. I think we can have those things that we recognize that we have in common as a culture, yeah. but within that we can tell unique stories that are also universal um yeah. and deal with the bigger issues you know because mental health for example is something that affects everyone all everyone. over the world there's certain communities that don't talk about it as much you know we talked about you know my filmmaking partner jr poli who did a feature called marcus um he's cuban-american he's from miami he had a personal bout <laughs> with depression and anxiety and and suicidal uh, issues and he turned that into uh, a short that eventually became a feature that i produced um, and our entire cast was African-American. Uh, and he was talking about how difficult it is within the black culture in America to talk about mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, our main actor was also suffering from that. And he's like, you know, there, and maybe there's a Latino, a machismo thing as well, where machismo, it's hard to, exactly. yeah, yeah. to talk about that. And that's very prevalent in the African-American community as well. And this film kind of opened up that dialogue. And we've also had veterans that have watched the movie. It's on Stars Network now. Uh, and they say, look, this is so helpful for me because hearing that story, which resonates so much with my experience, makes what I'm going through easier. Yes. Going back to your point, Vince, about telling these stories, because the media has that power, right? Yes. To change yeah. narratives, to make it OK to talk about things that were once taboo. Yeah, there's an actual there's actual studies out there that talk about the influence. Like if you watch something that that degraded older people, the young, the youth would actually be be more, you know, uh, adverse to be rude to older people. Like anything that you harp on so much, it's, it's also like how the veteran community kind of did it wrong. Veteran community wants to talk about suicide often. Right. So there's this whole 22 movement, right? I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying identifying the most negative aspect of a veteran wasn't the right answer. It was good initiative, bad judgment, right? What we created was a self-fulfilling prophecy of veterans saying, I'm a little lost right now. Maybe I'm supposed to be the statistic too. Right. And we actually gave them the answer that we shouldn't have. What we should be focusing on is highlighting successful individuals. Show what you can be. Give them a path to greatness, not the like, hey, you might be a statistic. Because none of us raise our kids to do that. Right. Never none of us tell our kids, hey, you might be a statistic, so you better watch <laughs> out. Right. No, we say you can be anything you want. You can do anything you freaking want. Put your mind to a hard work. Right. But somehow in the veteran community, it's a heartfelt message. We all feel for veterans. We all, it's, it's one of those, we all have a bleeding heart for like, thank you for serving. And then we thought that was also appropriate to be like, ah, oh, you guys commit suicide often. How can I help you? And then it's like, you just put that in their heads, right? Very impressionable people looking for a purpose and can't find one, find the only answer that is marketed more than anything, the most negative. Right. And so yeah. my goal was to change that narrative. Like I, I public speak, I tell them straight up, like everyone who talks about that, let's stop. Let's start highlighting positive positivity, veteran, 
That's why it's called bettering because like, no, man, we can be better. We can do more. There's so much we can be, right? I don't hang my hat on being a veteran. I hang my hat on being human in existence. My actually my, when I tell people like I'm a father first over everything, you know what I mean? Because that is who I am. That's what motivates me in the same aspect for Latinos. I think it's important to tell the story, but the, the wide spectrum of Latino stories, right? Because my story is being Mexican and Puerto Rican in LA is different from a Mexican Puerto Rican in New York. You know what I'm saying? It's all a beautiful story, right? But it's my existence. My truth is being in LA. I'm also the guy that doesn't speak Spanish because my parents were like, whoa, 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 we need to be English. We need to learn English. You guys need Mm -hmm. to learn Because my mom still said Cher and Bexy, right? Because she had a strong accent. And she's like, I'm an homie who you got to speak English, right? And so we all learned English. And then I never learned Spanish. Right. I, I, it went away from me. Actually, we, we kind of knew it. You understood it. And then it kind of slowly became the only thing I ever heard was English, even for my parents. Right. And my parents now have evolved so much that they speak English to each other. And I'm like, yo, life has changed. <laughs> right. Because they've completely evolved into a space. They still still speaks fluent Spanish, but they speak English to each other. And I remember the time when they never spoke English to each other, only Spanish. Right. But my truth is so different. Right. Being Hispanic in a border patrol. You're not telling me there's a dichotomy there. That's interesting. Like people, yeah. like, like they look at me like, Baragas, que pasó? and I'm like, bro, I'm, I'm protecting the country. I, be, I, I thought like my grandmother immigrated here because of opportunity. And I feel wholeheartedly about this decision. I don't do nothing wrong outside of my means of like, uh, you know, uh, apprehending someone and taking them in and processing them and, and send them off to, to whatever legal system uh, is, is in, the, in, at the time. Right. Like, so it was a very hard thing of being a border agent and being Latino because a lot of scrutiny on that, right? A lot of scrutiny on like, oh, you're turning your back on people. Like, but am I? I'm confused because I thought I'm American. I'm American first, right? But I'm also I'm also Mexican and Puerto Rican. Like, so there's a there's something in my heart that's always had struggle with that, you know. Not saying it's wrong. I think I think it's important to protect our country. I think it's important to protect our borders, right? But that doesn't mean I'm not human enough to feel what that feels like. You know what I mean? And also, yeah. you know, to associate the two of a woman coming over with a daughter. And I'm like, man, that could have been my grandma and my mom. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. I still associate with it and understand and have empathetic feelings towards it. And so I think that's a beautiful story to tell. So I'm trying to tell that story because I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of Hispanics that don't speak Spanish that, that, that are in this space where, Look, at some, in some circles, I'm too Hispanic. In other circles, I'm not Hispanic enough. And that needs to stop, right? Because my own community yeah. sometimes eats me alive. And I don't, I'm like, man, I'm just a human in here trying to tell stories. And I'm American because this is where I was born. And I can't change that, right? And so trying to tell that story in an honest way where everyone could be like, I get it. I get it. You know? And that's what I want to do. But that's only my truth, right? And, and Jose's truth will be slightly different in yours as well, Kev. Yeah, no, and it's funny yeah. if you just to kind of bring the conversation full circle to my LA days and growing up in Miami is that, yeah, there was a difference culturally growing up in Miami, particularly where I grew up in Hialeah, which is that everyone there assumed no matter what you look like, you were Hispanic. So you walk into the local grocery store or the Walgreens and it's always, hola, buenos días, como te puedo ayudar? And when I moved to LA, even though I could tell the person was Latino or of descent and I would start to speak to them, they would answer in English. Because yeah. they were trying to assimilate in order to get ahead yeah. over there. So for me, that was like a mind fuck. I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, you know, exactly. like, like, like in Miami, everyone just assumes Kevin's Dominican and we'll just go start rattling <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's funny how, like I said, even within the United States, different, like you said, different 
pockets of Hispanic communities, whether it's Miami, New York, Chicago, LA, there's subtle differences even yep. within those communities. Bro, I, I grew up in LA being Puerto Rican. There was no such there thing. There was nobody, <laughs> right. right? They were right. like, what's that? I'm like, it's Puerto Rican. They're like, so you're like half black. I'm like, no, I'm Puerto Rican, but whatever. You know, I'm like, well, I'll ride with it. You know what I'm saying? It is what it is because it was such a weird nuance to LA to have a Puerto Rican. Like no one, I barely knew what it was because my father moved to LA at 14 and was kind of like, all right, we're in, we're in a neighborhood. He's in a, he's in a Mexican gang, bro. He's not telling everyone he's Puerto Rican. He's like, okay, we're Mexican. Let's do this. You know? And my father was like, man, Vince, I grew up in, in LA with Mexicans. I, I love the food. I love the culture of it so much that I almost forgot the Puerto Rican roots. Right. And, and, I would, my mom would cook Puerto Rican and Mexican food. I never knew the difference. I never knew, I never knew what was Mexican, what was Puerto Rican. I thought it was all Mexican because we grew up raised like Mexicans. And then I met my wife who's 100% Puerto Rican. She's not from the island. Her, her parents were, and then they were New Yorkans and all that, right? And so yeah. I remember our first date, I took her to the fancy Puerto Rican restaurant. I'm like, hey, you don't like, you got any hot sauce? She goes, hot sauce. I was like, yeah, what? You don't, you Puerto Ricans don't eat hot sauce? She goes, no. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. So I learned so much about being married to an actual Puerto Rican woman, what the culture was like, you know what I mean? And it's just been beautiful. And that's why I, I, I wrote a script on this and we're, we're right now working on trying to get it optioned. And, and it's about these little nuances that I just have come to love so much about the culture. That's this awesome. is, this is really, really incredible. You know, this has opened up a, a conversation. You know, I wasn't, I knew that we would touch on this, but it's opened up a conversation. Get the same thing with the black community. You know, we have the same challenges and, you know, I don't want to say luckily because there's been a lot of fight to open up diversity. Yeah. And so, you know, that it's a blessing that, you know, this whole diversity conversation has opened up. It still is not even close right. to where it needs to be. But when you think about Mayans, which, you know, is just an awesome, awesome show, it has done a lot for diversity as a whole you know it oh, yeah. really has pushed the envelope in, in a lot of different ways so it has to feel you know really enriching to be a part of something that is groundbreaking in a lot of different ways absolutely so it feels like that's incredible it's our own version of the art of the outsiders that's what it feels like for me it's like right you know a bunch of young actors some new some older and whenever the show is done i imagine everyone will branch off into their world and be like, yeah, they started in Mayans or they were, they, they're from Mayans. You know what I mean? That's what, that's what I feel yeah. like to me. Yeah. And then go out and push the envelope, you know, right. as a, yeah. Um, as I mentioned, you know, my wife is a Nicaraguan. So it's been really interesting, you know, seeing her culture and I've been in Nicaragua a bunch of times and, you know, just really understanding this whole kind of um, experience that is a lot of ways similar to, you know, other, Latinx, uh, Hispanic, Latino, whatever you want to call it, uh, cultures, but distinctly different as well. So um, I did want to visit as we uh, wrap this up. I did want to, because we have to talk about projects that are current. And yeah. uh, Mayans is current, don't get me wrong, but projects that are current and then yeah. projects that are moving into the future. And yeah. so, you know, we have a project together that the foundation of it is mental health. And it so- is. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to let you talk about it. It's your yeah. episode. And then I'll, yeah. you know, I'll jump in. You know, um, in the creative space, I've been trying to find different approaches and different muses that will draw attention to different subjects. You know, I've done music, I've written music, and it did well, you know, the, the community really enjoyed it. But 
I was like, there's got to be another way to tell a story. And I've been involved a lot with addiction. I'm sober. I'm sober three and a half years, going on four here soon, right? And that started a new conversation of like sobriety. And then it went into like, why is addiction such an issue? You know, and then I started researching addiction. I started spending time at addiction clinics and watching how people came off of addiction. I started working for a company that was a toxicology lab. And what they would do is identify uh, any kind of drugs that are in the urine, in the urine system. Right. And so anytime someone consumed a drug, boom, it's there. Right. And so as I'm, as I'm working in this company and I'm, and I'm learning more about addiction and sobriety, I was like, you know, this isn't, again, I don't want to always make this veteran story. Right. I don't always want to make this veteran thing. I want to make this very human experience and addiction is a human experience. And so I wanted to write and I'm sitting there with my buddy, right? This guy, Mike, and he's like, we became really good friends. And he's telling me about his family struggle with depression, his family struggle with, you know, his significant other and, and how it's hurting the family. And I was like, so drawn by his story. I said, Mike, man, I'd love to, I'd love to write that in a way. And at this time, I already met Kevin because we we're talking about doing some, uh, a video for my nonprofit, right? And then I said, hey, Kevin, what do you think, man? I have this concept, man. I wrote this guy's little, like I wrote a script of my friend's life. And I think it would be really valuable to tell this in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, animated way. And when I sent it to Kevin, he was like, man, this is great. Let's do it. Right. And so we've been working on this project for almost two years. It feels like, right. Is it close to two years, Kevin? No, year and it's a, half? a year and some months. Oh, man. it feels like it. Yeah. But it's yeah, a year and some months. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've been, we've been going at it and, and our final results uh, to me, I was like scared, right? I'm like, man, I'm wondering if people are going to like this, right? And we, I showed it to a kid who struggled with addiction and he cried twice. And I was like, we did it. We, we, we did it. And it's, 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 it's this thing about visually capt capturing the emotions and telling the story that so honest that people see a little bit of them inside of it. And that to me is the power of writing and storytelling. And when, when I write something and someone says, man, I felt like I was like, you were in my head. Right. That's to me is like, you did it. Right. And I feel like this film did that. I think, we, I think we hit it on the head. Yeah. I mean, it's based on a true story. Based on so, true story. Yeah. you know, there's a lot to be said about that. And you want to be honest to this and truthful to the story itself. Yeah. And you want to relay as much as you can, the heart and soul yeah. of the, you know, the narrative. And so, you know, I've gotten similar uh, response to the story so far. We're just now entering festivals, so we're going to see what the festivals say about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, so far, so good in terms of people who have seen it. I'll send it to you, JL, as well. And uh, kind yeah, of get your... Yeah, I'd love to see it. It sounds fascinating, yeah. for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, what I got from my buddy, he said, how did you think about doing it in animation? I said, it was too expensive to film it in a real film, to be honest. You know what I mean? If I wanted, you know, and I don't know if an actor could pull yeah. off, I don't know if an actor could really pull off what our intention was. Like, that's how, like, raw this had to be. This had to be so yeah. that I think only yeah. animation could tell that story in a way that was gripping. I, I mean, an animation or, or some millions of dollars. Right, exactly. One, you, you, yeah, you need a $20 million other. dollar budget, and I'm going to get, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio to, right. you know, to break down on stage. You know, I got this, but. We don't have that, but I still want to get the message out to the something. world. You know what I'm saying? I still want to give yeah. the world this idea. And so the way we did it was through uh, animation. That's yeah. Great. And then, you know, we have to mention Jackin, who uh, is, yes. you know, a, a rapper of note, 
and you know has his own big following yeah um, so how we met know. essentially how this happened was so my brother was involved in in a rap group uh with jack and so i grew up you know obviously in the 818 but the area had a lot of you know sereno gang uh, activity and my brother was with a group that you know kind of rapped about the culture rapped about the latino uh you know gang culture and jack was is the most iconic you know latino underground rapper of our time that most people probably don't know about but but he's like a brother to me and when i got to la to film mayans i reached out to him and we started talking and he's like bro my boy does this animation and you recreate you recreated duke like what duke was was able to do his thing and duke for those who are listening duke is one of the was his brother is his brother but after one of the rap concerts at a Tommy's, there was a, a shooting and it left Duke a quadriplegic. And that was a devastating time for my family, for them, and for the, the rap community of the LA, you know, the LA culture rap community. And Jack told me like how much, like how awesome and beautiful it was to see his brother in action again through animation. And that was like, yeah. I was like, bro, give me his number. I got to call him. That's so dope. And that's what, <laughs> that's what started our relationship was Jack um, handing me over your contact. And for me and you now, I hope that we continue to make these films that, you know, that speak volumes. Yeah. And, you know, this is a group that was discovered by Cypress Hill, uh, Be yes. Real. And, yeah. you know, and so they, they are of note, but it was, that's what animation can do. You know, you can do a lot of different things. Now you can you know, bring people kind of back to life through deep fakes and yeah. through AI and through CG, which again, millions of dollars, you know, tens yeah. of millions of dollars. But, you know, with animation, you can really reach into the heart and soul and relay um, what you want to relay. Yes. And so I have to say that this interview has been a lot of heart and soul for sure. Thank you. And so I, I, it's, I think one of the more touching interviews that we've done so far what are we up we are up to like 75 now how many have we done 70 now, and change this might be 72 now i think if i if my math oh, is okay. correct but it's, it's well in it the... felt like 75 it feels like three <laughs> three episodes in one yeah no this is definitely we covered so much ground in this one episode yeah you're right this has been a great great hour so thank you so much vince no, no for problem. doing it so i guess we just have to go to our our signature you know we have a a two-parter that we end every interview with a two-part question uh, which are similar, but definitely not the same. Uh, and so I think that we should definitely move into that. And so usually I'll ask the first part and then Kevin asks the second part. Uh, so I'll just jump into it. And the, the first one, um, you know, since we're all in the movie business is a little bit of back to the future. So if you could go back in time to a young Vince in the Valley, uh, knowing what you know now as the, the sort of experienced 40-year-old filmmaker and accomplished TV star, what would you tell your younger self uh, knowing what you know now? And you know what? I think um, I would have to allow myself to experience it all over again because I think what makes me valuable as an actor and filmmaker is all the hardship that I did face. So I would, I'd probably buy him a soda and say, hold on tight, son. It's going to be a long ride because the emotional roller coaster that I went on in my life has given me all the storytelling capabilities that I give today. Wow. That's a, 
think you're only the second person that said that in the history of a screenie. So, and haven't said it the same way, but uh, close enough. So I'll uh, jump into the second part, which is, and we've touched on a lot of it, um, but if you could frame it more directly for people that want to get in the industry, are in the industry, want to grow in the industry, what advice would you give these people? Yeah, I think it's um, do the work. You know, I get a lot of calls and, and guys don't want to put in the work. They don't want to write. They just want the shortcut. They want the fastest approach to Hollywood, you know, and I would say slow it down and do all the work, like do the studying, do the training, um, fail, fail often. You know, I've made films that never went out. I've, I've spent a lot of money on my own opportunities and they, they just terrible. And, but I've learned from every single experience. And so it would be, don't, don't try and rush this process, allow it to happen and do the serious work. Because once you get so good at your craft that people can't turn from you, you're going to have a successful career. And that's from doing the work, man, getting the experience under your belt. You know, I, um, it's hard. This career field's hard. You're going to get a lot more no's and a lot more closed doors than anything. And, and, and being able to continue to hold on to that desire and dream uh, and keep pushing forward. The truth is if I post something on YouTube or Facebook that I've worked so hard on and gave my heart to, and only one person responds, it was just meant for them. You know what I mean? It's, it's okay. You know, because I, you know, you create the art and you just give it to the world and, you know, let it manifest into whatever that is. And so enjoy the process and uh, do the work. That is incredible, incredible advice um, for an incredible, incredible interview. I do have one last thing. Go for it. Um, you're writing this episode of Mayans. <laughs> <laughs> you already gave us a little exclusive. Um, is there anything you can talk about uh, in this this process of writing this episode. I mean, it doesn't have to be specific to yeah. the show no. itself and what's going to come out, but you know, you it could know. be you know, your process of writing it. You know, my goal is to, to learn from the room, you know, learn from Elgin himself. Um, I'm, I hope this is not the last room. I hope this is many, many rooms. And so I'm trying to put the best foot forward and bring the best ideas. My goal is to bring life to my community through my character a little bit more. Um, and like I said, I want to make a good impression. And because whenever this, this room closes, there will be another one. I'm hoping one of these writers in that room sees value in me and brings me into the next one. And so I really am just, I'm there to learn. I'm there to soak it all in. And I'm there to tell my truths uh, for season five. Can't wait to see Love it. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to wait. work with you guys more. Honestly, we're going to do more together. Hopefully, you know, we work together sometime. For sure. We'll say, you know, and, and That'd let's be great. Just continue to do our thing, guys. Yeah. No, no, that sounds like a definitely like a plan. So I think there's a lot of points in common that, that yet to be explored. So yes, looking sir. forward to it. <laughs> Thank so Thanks much. a lot, man. This All has right. been a great, great interview. All right. We're back. We are back. Um, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I was thinking to uh, go straight into this wonderful, wonderful tribute to cinema, Quentin Tarantino, mm. and some of his favorite fares, but also his favorite movie from his canon. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about Global Box Office. 
because there was a story that came out. Uh, Sony Pictures quarterly profit slips to $202 million. So that's an $88 million shift. Um, it's being said that a lot of it has to do with the yen and the shift in the yen. Right. So I know that, you know, especially now the global box office is as important as anything. But I just wanted to have that as an entryway into the conversation about the shift in the industry as a whole. Hmm. Because we look at companies like uh, Warner Discovery, which their streamer is HBO Max. And HBO Max, you know, they're not hitting the numbers that they anticipated. Disney Plus is not, not as yet. They do look to having uh, profitability by 2024. But with right. Disney, I mean... Their big business is the, it's the uh, theme parks. So well, right now that that's their cash cow because you know they although and obviously because the streamer requires such an investment and now they have to deal with this three headed monster right of Hulu, Disney Plus, and um, ESPN Plus. Uh, that's losing money for them because of all the money yeah. they have to pour into it, right? You know, in order to make yeah. it work. I mean, we we've all heard about the you know the issues that Netflix is having in terms of their debt load and and just trying to build more and more content uh to sort of get ahead of the game and keep subscribers so that's you know that's something that they're going to have to invest in for a few years but you know uh thankfully now that we're in a situation where folks are going out again and doing things their theme parks are really what's you know kind of floating that ship right now yeah yeah and you know we have Amazon which Amazon well <laughs> They're laying off 11,000 people, but, uh, and they're on a hiring freeze, but, you know, they're selling refrigerators and toys and whatever else it is. Right. So yeah, they're going to be fine one way or the other. Oh, but yeah. when you talk about just state media companies, hmm. everyone is trying to figure out how to capture the same eyeballs that they captured before. And of course the same profits that they captured before. So seeing these shifting sands in the film, media, and entertainment industry, it is a seismic shift, yeah. like no time ever. Hmm. Yeah. Because it's yeah. not just that they're competing with each other, they're also competing with TikTok and Instagram and all of these other platforms that are democratizing the eyeballs. So it's going to be an interesting year or so maybe you know two or three years to see how all this comes together yeah. uh, as you know you know i've been venturing into the metaverse market disney you know they announced they had a metaverse around april so that's going to come into play i think in a huge huge way but to see all of this matriculate uh in the entertainment industry in the film and entertainment industry uh is just remarkable it's certainly a time uh that has not happened in the history of the industry. Yeah, well, it is. And, and it's, it is historic, but, you know, as they say, especially in this business, history does have a way of repeating itself. And, uh, and I think that ties into our Tarantino story, who uh, basically announced recently that his favorite film of his canon of what, nine films so far, uh, yeah. is actually Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is his most recent release. And, uh, you know, a Sony release as well in Columbia Pictures. And also a film that was his biggest box office winner, also garnered 10 Academy Award nominations. We mentioned off mic, Brad Pitt being a big winner there uh, for his role in that film, uh, along with, you know, just a, a fantastic cast, right? Margot Robbie was in it. 
And, you know, of course, uh, Leo DiCaprio, his great performance as well, just spectacular cast. And, and what's interesting about, you know, his sort of take on it is prior to that, he always said, well, you know, obviously every interview, they would always cast Tarantino, what's his favorite film? He'd say, well, they're all my children. You know, typical yeah. filmmaker thing to say, right? But now, yeah. you know, he's being straight up and saying, this is my favorite, because I think it's probably his most personal. It's about, you know, he grew up in Southern California. He kind of saw the changing landscape of Hollywood as it transitioned from the sort of 50s, 60s era into the 70s, which was considered sort of that, you know, that's chaotic time where movies just were wild and crazy, even though there were studio films. But he also pointed out in a separate, he has his own podcast, that what he believes are two of the worst eras in filmmaking right now uh, uh, in terms of his, which is interesting, are the 50s, the 80s, and the films that are coming out right now. Right now. Right yeah. now, the current era. And he may attribute it to the fact that we are switching now this model, right? So this seismic shift to streaming is causing filmmakers and content creators just to think with a different scope than they were before. And I think, and, and, and he actually alludes, going back to history, repeating himself, in the 50s, it was very similar because there was the advent of television. So for the first right. time, you were watching stuff on a small screen, causing, you know, the filmmakers to also think, you know, in a different scope. And perhaps seeing now, uh, you know, because prior to that, going to the movies, especially in the 40s, I can imagine, obviously, I wasn't around, maybe our grandparents, but... Um, it was an experience like you got dressed up, yeah. you know, you know, there was probably no eating and drinking inside the theater. It was yeah. like really a thing to do. It was an experience. You had to plan for it. Uh, and then when TV came out, you could just sit on your couch and see what was playing. And yeah. I don't know if what he was trying to say is that filmmakers became lazy, kind of. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen some of the stale? original films on Netflix? Um, no, they're they're great, but again, it's just no, I think some when, are great, but uh, when yeah, are. when it's e so easy, they, comparatively easy to do now, you know, even easier yeah. with the iPhone, right? Like everyone pretty much has a movie studio in their pocket, you know. The advent of YouTube, you know, going back to his mm -hmm. comments on today, you know, anybody can be a filmmaker, you know. Before and remember when we were in film school, when you had to buy that film stock, you had to think about your shots. Right. You yeah. needed that shot yeah. list because you didn't want to spend another 20, 30 bucks developing another roll of film. And yeah. and so there was a magic to that and there was an art to that. And I think what he's feeling now is that it's becoming more of a commodity because mm. now we have these streamers that have these endless, vast libraries of content. Uh, you know, now there's that joke going around, right, that, you know, you can spend an hour watching Netflix, only watching Netflix because you can't find anything you want to watch. <laughs> um, you know, as you're going through like aisles and aisles of stuff that used to be the blockbuster kind of like B movie section, right? Um, yeah. And it feels like that's endless now with this sort of digital evolution. And yeah. I think that was part of Tarantino's rant of why he kind of dislikes the current way that films are made, conceived, and consumed is yeah. that it's too much of a commodity. It's not really the sort of art and obviously other the craft. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mentioned before, you know, uh, Scorsese, who also alluded to that, um, you know, are we losing a little bit of that magic and that sensibility of what it means to tell a story? And, and that's something that I think we have to look at as producers, as filmmakers going into the future, you know, because is it more is better or is it better is better? 
going forward. <laughs> yeah, it's you know always I mean? better is better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. So, but, you know, is it really just a numbers game now? Is that the game that Disney and Netflix and, you know, the big media companies are playing is we just need to keep putting out more shit, more shit, more shit. Or do we take a step back and go, okay, let's really figure out what makes sense. You know, HBO was notorious for taking forever, right, to develop content. And they revolutionized television, essentially. And you basically started to see these sort of mini movies on your small screen. The Sopranos being one of the first examples of that. But there's been tons yeah. of those. And at the beginning, you know, even Netflix, uh, you know, had what they considered prestige dramas. And they still do, you know, The Queen's Gambit and all these other great shows that are, the you Crown. know, racking up Emmys and Golden Globes and The Crown. But at some point, you know, when you have this sort of binge model where it's always just about what's next, not about what you're seeing and really experiencing that, thinking about it. You know, uh, filmmakers used to sit around and just talk about movies forever, movies that they saw 10 years ago that were still relevant. I don't know if this generation would do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I just feel like, you know, I'm kind of feeling that vibe now of what Tarantino's of the world are saying, what the Scorsese's of the world are saying is that, you know, are we just kind of losing everything in this sort of void of endless content? Yeah, well... You know, it's my hopes that, you know, I'm, I'm working on a bunch of stuff and I know that you're working on a bunch of stuff, too. Um, and we know people that are working on lots of things. But I, I just really feel that the dust is going to settle over the next mm-hmm. two to three years. And the pandemic really shook things up in a way that people didn't anticipate. You, know, you can't anticipate something like that. But I think the dust is going to settle over the next two to three years and you know, whatever the path forward is, um, we're going to see it more clearly. And so for me, it's an exciting time because, you know, you can tell these stories in many different types of ways, but it's, I think, figuring out how to effectively do that. I mean, you mentioned television. And so television was one thing. And then some of the best stories now are on television, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, you could call it what you know watching your computer or watching you know on your tablet or whatever some of the best content is in long form so you know i think the dust will settle in the next two three years and then we'll see how it all plays out and we'll see quentin tarantino's 10th film which he says is going to be hopefully yeah i mean there's been so many rumors about that from you know him directing a star trek movie to you know (laughs) god knows what other ideas have been kind of popping in his head but i think he's going to give us something unique and interesting and and i think one of the barometers kind of going back to our earlier stories of this podcast is the theatrical experience if your film is good enough to be in theaters and seen by a mass audience that way maybe that's the barometer and maybe it's it doesn't have maybe. to be all superhero movies. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's nothing that. wrong with superhero. I'm not going to get on that soapbox with with Scorsese uh, and yeah. some of the other ones. But you know, I think some of these superhero movies are great. Particularly Black Panther is one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. But I do believe that you know if you can break through, and we'll see how the Fablemans does, uh, and we'll see what Tarantino's next theatrical release does. But I think if the theaters can hold out and if they can become that sort of mark of quality, which they were known for, then I think that they, there's a way to move forward where the streaming world and the theatrical world can, can sort of cohabitate. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> Elegantly. 
<laughs> yeah. So um, that's a great note to uh, to leave this one off on. So um, I'll leave our audience with us. I'm Kevin Sharpley. Gail Martinez. This is Screen Heat Miami. We'll hear you on the next one. Ali.